Hi, Gateway. My name is Robin. And I'm Nima. We're going to read the scripture reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition and sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, or will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on the account of me. Good morning. And welcome to Gateway Online. We're so happy to have you with us on Mother's Day. And I'd like to ask wherever you are, if you would just wave your hands in the air if you had a mother. I'm guessing it's unanimous. Thanks, Mom, and happy Mother's Day. I want you to imagine that you're getting this flower at Gateway this morning. Since we can't be together, it's just going to have to be digital. Over the last couple of weeks, we've asked if you would send in texts or pictures of moments that have tickled your joy bone, and many of you have done so. I want to share some of those again this morning. Jill sent in this picture, telling us that hiking has tickled her joy bone, especially when she finds spots like this. Nicole sent pics of her two kids, and Dallas agreed, not about Nicole's kids, but about her own. And when you can spend the kind of time that some of these parents are spending with their kids and they still tickle your joy bones, that's some pretty good mothering. I think one of my favorite joy pictures, though, along with the one that confused me the most, was Lori's picture of celery. Now, I guess for some of you that explains itself. For others of us, it remains a mystery, Lori. Of course, the Artist of the Week award goes to Jennifer and her slow-mo video of her daughter. Watch this. When she sent us the video, Jennifer said this, it brings so much joy to see the world through the eyes of a child. We had just mowed this lawn five days prior. <laughs> On this day, over a hundred dandelions had popped up. 
Still, my daughter was so excited about all the wishes she could make. And then she added this pearl of wisdom. My daughter had so much fun blowing dandelions and essentially planting more weeds slash wishes. It's all perspective. One person's weed is another person's wish. What? So you know that weeds versus wishes business kind of reminds me of Paul's message from the passage that Robin and Nima read for us in Philippians 1. Today's the fourth week in our series of conversations about stubborn joy. And once again, Paul explains that he's in prison yet rejoicing. And once again, we're asking how. How does Paul reframe his seriously challenging, life-threatening circumstances and make it look like joy? Okay, here's the deal. The passage we just read kind of sounds like one of those detailed sections where Paul just reports what's happening only because it's Paul. He throws in a bunch of religious stuff. But it's so much more than that. What Paul talks about here is his central drive, his main motivation in life. Then knowing that, his central drive will help us understand how he views his suffering and ultimately how he views his death. And then all of that taken together will help us understand how Paul reframes his circumstances. In other words, this will help us see how joy clung to Paul even in the darkest moments. So first, Paul's central drive. Now I think it's fair to say that all of us have a primary motivation. It may be providing for our family or in a larger sense, success or comfort or the reverse. A fear of failure may drive us. Maybe it's happiness or some cause or the right relationship. The Apostle Paul makes his central drive absolutely clear in this passage. Listen to this survey and I think you'll get the idea. He says in verse 13, as a result, it has become clear that I am in chains for Christ. And then he brags about how this has encouraged others to speak about Christ. In verse 18, he talks about his circumstances. He says this, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. In verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, obviously, the central driving force in Paul's life was seeing the reputation of Jesus expanded. He wanted the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection told everywhere. He wanted others to experience what he had experienced because of Jesus. He wanted God's cause to advance. This was the central driving force in Paul's life. Now, let's be honest. The way Paul explains his central drive is impressive, especially if you're a Christian. It may be encouraging, even inspiring, again, especially if you're a Christian, but it doesn't seem very practical. And it's hard to see how this drive relates at all to joy. It sounds religious for sure. It sounds noble, but does it relate to joy on Tuesday when the dishwasher breaks or on Thursday when you hear that people in your company are being furloughed? I really believe it does. So let's see. Jump back up to verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. 
Now, this section of the letter is one of the reasons that most scholars believe that Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this. The reference to the palace guard would be especially apt if that had been his location. And the Philippians, of course, knew about this imprisonment. We learn in chapter 2 that they had sent one of their members, a guy named Epaphroditus, to check on Paul and to minister to him. And because they knew about Paul's imprisonment, they were concerned. So this letter is being written in part to answer their concerns. How are you, Paul? How are you feeling? What's going to happen at your trial? So those are the obvious questions. Then, of course, the Philippians would have had questions of a more delicate nature, like, how's your imprisonment affecting your ministry, Paul? Why are you suffering like this? And what does this say about your apostleship? I mean, isn't God supposed to take care of people like you? So Paul answers some of that. And that brings us to his view of suffering. Look, Paul was suffering but he was convinced that his suffering had led to the advancement of the story of Jesus, and that actually excited him. Now, let me break that down with three important observations. First of all, Paul knew that his suffering had actually introduced Jesus into the world of the Roman palace. Let me repeat. Paul knew that his suffering had introduced Jesus into the world of the Roman palace. Here's what I mean. In verse 13, he says that he was suffering for Christ. Now, most commentators understand this phrase to mean that the reason for his imprisonment is because he's a Christian, not because he's a lawbreaker. In other words, hey, I'm suffering here because I claim to be a Christian, not because I did anything wrong. I'm suffering for Christ. But like many commentators, I think the phrase for Christ means much more than that. I believe when Paul says he suffered for Christ, he's actually thinking about his unity with Christ. He, Paul, was suffering as Christ's representatives because... Wherever Paul went, Jesus went because Jesus was in Paul. Literally, because Paul was there, it was as if Jesus was there. Now, Paul would have never had access to the Roman palace except through his imprisonment. But because of his imprisonment, because of his suffering, Jesus gained access to the inner circle of Roman power. Think about what that says about suffering for a minute. Think of the suffering in your life. Remember the conversations you've had because of your suffering. Jesus was able to enter into those situations with that other person in a way that would be unavailable to him except through your suffering. Let's imagine the possibilities for how God could respond to suffering for a minute. He could ignore it. He could obliterate it. Or he could enter in through it. This seems to be what Paul is suggesting. Paul was suffering for Christ. This gave Paul's suffering immense meaning. It also gave Paul the understanding that his suffering was actually aiding his own central drive. Paul's suffering was accomplishing Paul's highest goal, the advancement of the gospel. Secondly, and again, we're explaining the idea that Paul believed that his suffering led to the advancement of the gospel. So secondly, Paul knew that his suffering emboldened others to tell Jesus' story, and this meant that Jesus' story advanced. Now, this business of other people preaching was a mixed bag, right? Paul is honest about that in verses 15 through 18. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached. Okay, here's how that all lays out. I want you to look at this chart. So you've got rivals and, you know, they preach Christ out of envy and motivated by selfish ambition. Then you've got fellows. They preach Christ out of goodwill, fellow saints. Preach Christ out of goodwill. And they're motivated by lovingly knowing Paul's heart. But look at this. The result in both is that Christ is preached. In this whole chart, the only thing that mattered to Paul was that the gospel was preached. In the bigger picture, that's all that mattered to Paul. That that was the central drive. The expanse of Jesus' reputation and the advance of Jesus' story was Paul's central motivation. Do you see how that shaped his view of suffering? Third observation about suffering. Paul knew that his suffering was by divine appointment. He knew God had arranged this. The phrase, I am put here, in verse 16, translates the Greek word kaime. I want to quote, if I can, from a Greek dictionary about this word kaime. Listen to this. The word kaime is lie or recline, literally. It's built on a perfect tense paradigm and thus came to express an appointment. It could well be translated, I have been set toward the end which its context describes. This same word, kaime, is used in Luke 2.34 when Simeon says of Jesus the child, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, Paul knew that God had set this circumstance on his calendar. He was in the center of God's will. And Paul is able to reframe his circumstances because his central drive was the advancement of God's cause. He was able to literally rejoice in his sufferings because he saw that his sufferings were producing what he most wanted to produce. He knew he was right where he was supposed to be and Jesus' story was being amplified. But there was also the lingering possibility of Paul's death hanging over this prison term. So what does he say about death now? In short, Paul was not afraid of death because he knew that death meant being with Christ. And either way, his life or his death, the cause of Christ would be advanced. Again, let me break that down with two quick observations. First, Paul saw death as gain. Death is a benefit for those who are in Christ. We get to be joined with him. We get what our heart's true longing is. In verse 23, Paul put it this way. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Can I be honest and say that I'm not yet in the same place, but I can also truly tell you, unlike when I was younger, I can now see this place. My own faith is deepened enough that I can see this kind of thinking just ahead of me, and I can see how freeing it is. Secondly, concerning his death, Paul is confident that he will be delivered. This is the word he used in verse 18, but he goes on to explain that his deliverance comes either way, whether by living he's delivered from the Roman sentence and is able to preach and be an encouragement to the Philippians, or by death he's delivered into the presence of his longing and his God. Now, perhaps Paul is being a bit Pollyanna, or maybe he's a bit delusional, or even, let's be more charitable, maybe this is wishful thinking, maybe this is blowing on dandelions, but I don't think so. And the alternative, if he's not just making wishes, the alternative, if this is all true, is insured, circumstance-independent, stubborn joy if we embrace it. 
Years ago, I had the opportunity to hear the testimony of uh, Reverend Joseph Son. He spoke in Massachusetts at the seminary I went to. Reverend Son was one of the leaders of the dramatic revival in Romania in the 80s, very near the end of communist rule there when hundreds and hundreds, thousands, especially young people, were coming to know Christ. Christianity was barely tolerated in communist Romania, and then only if it stayed within acceptable, controllable bounds. Son began to preach in the open air, which was decidedly not within bounds and was illegal. Worse still, people began to respond in mass and were being baptized, which was also illegal. So uh, Reverend Son was regularly hassled by local authorities, and in his testimony, Son told about one of the last times he was subjected to some kind of a hassle. Clearly, the authorities intended to put an end to his preaching, so they imprisoned him, they beat him and tortured him, and they threatened him. And finally, on one of the last days of his imprisonment, he was brought into a room and was surprised to find one of the leading figures of the party sitting in front of him. Reverend Son, do you know who I am? Yes, says Reverend Son. Well, then you know that I have the power to do whatever I want with you. I demand you stop preaching, and if you do, all will be well. And Reverend Son responded, you have no power over me except what is given to you. If you kill me, then I become a martyr, and the message of Jesus spreads tenfold. If you spare me, then I will return to the streets and preach, and the message of Jesus will spread tenfold either way. Can you see the freedom in that? Can you feel the power in that, which can push joy up through the most hardened circumstances in our lives? When our lives are sunk into Christ, when our actions and our motivations are for Christ, our joy is unsinkable. It is secured against any external influence. Now, we've been using the word reframe off and on in this discussion, and that's often how counselors and therapists talk about this. And what Paul does here instinctively is what counselors and therapists spend years trying to train their patients to do. This is absolutely not denial. This is not wishful thinking. It is recognizing the opportunities that are presented and framing your understanding around those. It is seeing reality from a different, hopefully more valid perspective. For Paul, his central drive to see the story of Jesus advance becomes the foundation on which he lays a freeing and healthy view of suffering and of death. Then this gives him the energy to reframe his understanding of his circumstances and to see the opportunities that his circumstances presents. And can you see that Paul's circumstances have lost their power to influence his joy? All of it is subsumed in his drive to see the cause of Christ advanced. There's no homework for us today, I don't think. But I do have a couple of observations that inevitably fall out of this passage for me. I mean, consider these as challenges. The first observation, obviously, our suffering has meaning. Always. All of it does. Wherever we go, God goes because he lives in us. 
He is with us in our suffering. And I don't just mean in the sense that we're not alone. That's of course true. But I mean, God goes where my suffering goes. We take Jesus with us and we go through suffering into places, physically and emotionally with others, that we could not go if it weren't for our suffering. Our suffering has meaning. The second closing observation and challenge for us is this. What we've talked about today, Paul's testimony, this is for us. What Paul has described is for us. This is what we were made for. Our lives are bigger than we think. We are part of a very great story. We were designed to give ourselves over to a very great cause. We were designed to live with the cause of Christ as our central drive. This is how our lives maximize joy. Let's close in prayer. Father, make this real for us. So capture our hearts and our minds, Lord, that by an act of our will, we make the advancement of your cause the central drive of our lives. We see, Lord, that that shapes the way we view all of the difficulty in our lives, which allows us to reframe our circumstances. And it allows stubborn joy to flourish. Uh, Father, make this real. For any of us, Lord, who do not have a real connection with you, I pray, Jesus, that you would make yourself known, that you would speak in a way that we can understand. Draw us in. And Lord, again today, those of us who are connected to you, we gladly, willingly, from our heart, we bend our knee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Happy Mother's Day. So good to have you.